Our first reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house, or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The word of the Lord. Okay, so here's a game I'd like to play. I'd like to play a game called Name That Vice, and the naming the vice is going to be your own personal vice. Here's the way we're going to play the game. I'm going to name a series of vices, attitudes and actions that are against God's purposes. When I name the one that is your primary vice, I'm going to have you stand up in your seat and come forward, and then we're going to sh- you're going to stand up here, okay? So the way this game will be played is I'll name it, and then you go. So you hope yours is not first, but eventually we'll probably all be up front. Okay, the first one is jealousy and envy, and so, no, stay where you are, right? I mean, obviously we're not going to do that. But I am going to go through a series of them, and I want you to self-identify, okay? Self-identify where you're seated. Don't raise your hand. Don't nod your head so much that everyone, or don't point to the person next to you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Jealousy and envy. Primary issue, your moral struggle, your character flaw, your addiction. Anger or temper. Dishonesty or cheating. Sexual infidelity or lust. Power and control. Greed and love of money. Pride and self-righteousness. Your tongue, your meanness. Bitterness, unforgiveness. Okay, I'm going to stop there. My guess is even with just that short list, most of us could identify at least one. One primary issue that, yeah, that's one I kind of wrestle with all the time. The hardest for most people, if we went out of this room and just walked down the street, the hardest for most people is actually pride. Most people cannot identify pride as as a primary issue which really pushes us against God. Now, most Christians who have been in the church for a while know they're supposed to not be proud, so they quickly self-identify as, well, I've got a pride issue, we all do. And, and actually, that's very authentic in many ways, because the more you hear the gospel, the more you recognize pride is at the root of so much of our problem. 
But I'm wondering if anyone in this room thought their primary issue was greed and love of money. A pastor who had been in the pastorate for 30 plus years wrote that in all of his years of counseling, he'd had people come and confess just about every possible sin known to man. Not one had ever mentioned their love of money or greed. Money blinds us. So this is exciting, right? Last week we talked about the end of the world. This week we get to talk about money. If you've been visiting us, you're gonna just leave, never come back. This is what churches always talk about. No, I actually don't normally talk about this, but this is what Jesus is talking about, so we're gonna talk about it. So here's the issue as I see it. Relative wealth distorts. And the problem is we compare ourselves naturally to people in our own socioeconomic subgroup. That's the reason why wealth and love of money blinds us. Here's what I mean. We only look at people that live near us and say, oh, there's always people who are doing better than me, so I'm not as bad as them in whatever way that I'm bad with my materialism, my love of money, my concern for my investments. There's always people who are worse, right? But we don't look beyond our own neighborhood when we should be looking around the globe, of course. Here's the global statistics from some recent surveys. Median household income, straight middle of the line household income across the globe is less than $10,000 a year. Median net worth for a family is less than $70,000 a year. Net worth is everything you own. Your bank account, all your clothes, your cars, your house, anything. And over 70% of the world has less than $10,000 in net wealth. Land, homes, cars, those things don't exist. That's the equivalent of a 2010 Honda Civic. Does anyone in here have more than that? That puts us at least, at least in the top third of the world, right? You know, the interesting thing is Jesus taught more about greed and money than about anger, sex, or hell combined. He actually talked more about money than he did about prayer or faith. He recognized there's an issue. And we, who live in the wealthiest nation in the world, need to recognize there might be an issue. We should probably start with the basic assumption that money, materialism, and greed at least could be a problem for us. Could be. So in order to kind of examine it, we're gonna look at the story of the rich ruler who approaches Jesus, and here's the three things we're gonna ask. What is the issue with money and possessions for the rich ruler and then for us? Second, what does God desire regarding our money and possessions? And third, what is the real heart of the matter? So here's the story. You guys know it if you've been in church Sunday school, you've seen the flannel graph of it. A rich ruler who was basically somebody who was a leader in the community, we don't know the exact part, but he had status and he had wealth status and wealth, and he was a religious man of some sort. He was a faithful, morally upstanding man. This rich ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, you know the commandments, honor your father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie. And the rich ruler says something that most of us would be careful to say. He says, I, all these I've kept since my youth. 
Now he's in the midst of a crowd of people that knew him because it's a village life. If this was not true about him, they would have been like, nope. But he's acknowledging something they all know. This is true. He's a faithful man. He's a really good guy. He's incredibly wealthy and incredibly good. You know, if he came to one of us or if he came to me, I might say something like this. Look, you've got a guilty conscience. Calm down. All you need to do is believe. Just believe in Jesus. Don't do anything. Don't worry about what you need to do to him. Just believe. That's probably what I would tell him. But that's not what Jesus says. What Jesus does not say to the man is also, you know what you need to do? You need to give a little more money to the poor. Give 10% away. Show up at the temple more often. He doesn't give him a few more rungs to climb. Probably because he'd already done everything that would have been asked in that religious context. Instead, what does Jesus say? He says, take everything, all that you have, all that you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the man went away sad because he was extremely rich. And then Jesus follows up talking to his disciples at this point with the famous statement, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's actually easier for a camel, a very large animal, to go through the eye of a needle, a very small thing, than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now what's interesting is what the disciples say in response to this. Who then can be saved? Now what's the basis of them saying who then can be saved? If it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of God than a camel to go through the eye, who can be saved? The basis of it is their understanding of covenant faithfulness in Judaism. You see, God made a promise to the people of Israel that if they were faithful to him, he would deliver them into the promised land, and if they were faithful while in the promised land, they would be fruitful, and they would multiply, and they would have rains, and they would flourish. So by Jesus' day, there was a basic understanding that if you were rich, unless you were in cahoots with the Romans, if you were rich, it was because of something you had done, something you had done well. When you were faithful, when you obeyed the commands, when you did everything that was laid out for you in the Old Testament, God must bless you with rains and land and crops and flourishing and children and homes. If you're rich, you're doing the right things. And of course, in our modern age, we actually have a very similar thing. We don't have a religious understanding in America, but we have a meritocracy that's based on our capitalism as an understanding of if you have wealth, you probably deserve it. That's the basic underlying assumption of capitalism. You work hard and you earn something, right? That's how it works. If you have success and prosperity, it's probably because you're doing it, American dream type thing, you're doing it right. You throw on top of that our radical individualism in America. And we have all this wealth that is mine. I have my rights. This is my money, I've earned it. It's my property, my house, my bank account. 
it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of God than for the poor. What Jesus is pointing out is that there is an inherent connection and problem between wealth and faith, a dissonance that happens. A friend of mine years ago was working as a Young Life volunteer at a rich private school. She said it's so hard to reach these girls with the message of the gospel because they don't need anything. Everything they possibly need, from cars to clothes to vacations to a great house, they have. They don't think they need anything, let alone God. This is possibly what is underneath some of the differences in faith and generosity between poor locations and rich locations. Studies have shown that generosity in the United States can be geographically traced The the poorest states, like Alabama and Mississippi, give approximately 7% of income to charities. The richest states, like Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, give less than 3%. The same is true with faith on the global scale. The wealthiest countries tend to be the most agnostic, atheistic, and secular. And the poorest countries in places like Africa, Central America, India, tend to be the ones with the most devoted religious fanatics, if you would. Now, a secular reasoning on this is because they lack education. If they, li- if they got education, if they were as smart as we are in the West, then they'd know there is no God. Now, besides the underlying superiority that comes from that, Jesus might be hinting at another reason why faith is more prevalent in poorer worlds. It's because they're not blinded to their need. They're dependent constantly. So to depend on a creator and a savior is very natural. But in the West, our wealth and our prosperity has bred an autonomy and an independence that goes like this. I'm happy and secure on my own. I don't really need a God. I can get whatever I want. I'm basically in control of my life. I'm sort of God of my own life. Author and pastor Randy Alcorn wrote in his book on money, there is a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. It's possible we all have a money problem. So let's get to the answer. What's God's desire? What is God's desire regarding our money and possessions? Well, the first thing to note is this. Look, money is not the root of all evil. That is a misquoting of the Bible. And in fact, throughout Scripture, you have people who were faithful and wealthy. Abraham, Job, Solomon. In the New Testament, Jesus does not tell the centurion or Nicodemus they need to sell everything, and both of them would have been of the wealthiest in their cities. Lydia was a faithful follower of the Lord in the book of Acts and used her wealth for God's kingdom. And pretty much every church that existed in the first century met in houses, which meant they had to meet in the largest house in the community, which means somebody had to own that house. Money by itself is not the problem. And in fact, if you go back to the creation narrative, you can see that money and wealth was maybe even a part of God's original intention and design in this sense. God says in his creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply. He calls on Adam and Eve to tend the garden, which means to take a jungle and make it fruitful, make it turn into something. He encourages them to have dominion over the world. 
Wealth is a part of the fruitfulness and flourishing that God intended with creation. Now, the problem is we live on this side of the fall. So there's great disparity and poverty. But as long as we have our wealth, it's all right. I think God's desire, if you read through Scripture, is that I would see all of my wealth not primarily as mine for my good or my pleasure or even, not even for my security. Everything that I have is not there for my good, my pleasure, or even my security. It is intended first for God's kingdom, God's purposes, and the good of all others. The key, I think, is our heart's orientation with regards to our money and possessions and wealth in general. And to unlock that, we're going to look at generosity because generosity reveals the orientation of the heart. Are you willing to part with your money and stuff? Will reveal the orientation of your heart. In many Christian traditions, if you're familiar with it, there's an understanding of this word tithe. Now, it's not in every tradition, but in many traditions, the word tithe is used. A tithe is 10%. And so if you come from a Bible church, a Baptist church, you probably know about the 10%, the tithe. It's that 10% of your income is supposed to go to the work of the Lord. That can be charity, that can be your church, that can be something else, some other way of donating, right? 10%. That's a traditional Christian reading, and it comes from a couple portions of the Old Testament that, ex- that command the Israelites that their income that year, the fruit of their, their fields and their labors and their animals, 10% of that was to be offered to the Lord. Now the problem, as Craig Blomberg in his book on poverty and wealth examined, is that it falls short of even the Old Testament standard. The Old Testament standard started with 10%, but on top of the 10% of your income, you had to make offerings if you had a firstborn son, You had to make offerings if your cow had a firstborn cow, if your sheep had a firstborn lamb. You had to make offerings and sacrifices when you went to worship. So Passover and tabernacles were incredibly expensive. And beyond that, you were called as an Israelite to be generous to the poor and the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. You were not to, to, to use the corners of your fields but leave those available, and you were to provide hospitality and care for those who could not care for themselves. Blomberg, adding up the Old Testament, said the average Israelite, if they were actually being faithful to the Old Testament standards, would have given 20 to 25% of their wealth annually to the Lord and charity. Not 10. And that's even dismissing this thing called the year of Jubilee which is a unique set of commands in the Old Testament that, as far as we know, was never actually followed through, that on the 50th year in the land of Israel, they were supposed to set all debts free. Anyone who was enslaved, anyone who had to sell off their land, everything would be returned to its original state. Every 50th year, that meant all of us who had lots of wealth would return to where we were 50 years ago, and everyone who had lost everything would return to where they were 50 years ago. Most Christian churches don't follow the Old Testament standard. Jesus takes it a step further. 
Actually, Jesus never mentions a number. He doesn't say, you really need to give 28%. Jesus is looking at the heart, but he's pushing a little further, right? He says, okay, I know. Let me just give you something that might sum it all up. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let that influence what you do with your money. How do you love yourself with your wealth? Okay. Drop all and follow me. What are you holding on to follow him? Drop all and follow me. In other words, Jesus says not just 10% or even 25%, but all for God and the good of others. Why? Because that's actually the message of the gospel. It's a message of grace. When Paul is writing his second letter to the people in Corinth, the Corinthian letter, he asks them to give a special donation because they're a wealthy congregation, a wealthy city. He asks them to give a special donation to the poor in Jerusalem because in Jerusalem they were suffering through famine and drought and people were starving there. What Paul does not say is, you guys call yourselves Christians, why don't you give a little more, you greedy jerks? Instead, he reminds them of the grace of the gospel. And this isn't just reverse psychology. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's telling them the gospel as a heart-transforming motivator for why they should give or might want to give. And the basic message goes like this. The gospel is is a message of grace. I deserve nothing. I earn nothing, but he gave me everything. Jesus didn't come to give like 10% of himself. Here you go, you can have my left hand. He hangs on a cross, offering him wholly, completely for us. He gives everything. And faith, saving faith is ultimately grasping that I owe all to Christ, and so I willingly give my whole self totally and completely to Christ. This gospel message of grace has the power that can free us from money's grip. Tim Keller, writing on this, said, faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding and identity, our view of the world, To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. The gospel, when fully believed, actually enables open-handedness, which I think is ultimately God's desire for all of our money and wealth. All I have is God's because I am God's. And that can be on the very simple level. I remember working for a summer, for a month, at a Young Life camp up in the Adirondacks, and I met a guy there who was a year older than me, and he was somebody who was just really nice, really friendly. He was in charge of the kitchen. And some kid came up to him, one of my peers, and said, oh, Carl, that's a really cool hat. And he took it off and said, you want it? It's yours. I talked to him about it later, and it wasn't just some trick. He had been convicted that if he really was following the Lord, he he was 19, by the way, at the time, that anything he had could be given away. And if it would make somebody else happy to have this hat, here, take it. I don't need it. The gospel enables an open-handedness with everything. 
not just my money and savings, but my home, my car, my career, my kids. Like the song that says, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. It goes on to say, take my hands, take my voice, take my silver and gold. When we live open-handedly, we're actually worshiping, saying, everything I have is yours. God entrusts it to us, but I'm not holding on to it. He can do with it what he wants. To the extent that I do that, it's incredibly freeing and joyful. What's the heart of the matter? The heart of the matter is that it's not about money. That's what we've been talking about, but it's not about money. It's rather about who or what is your God. This story of the rich ruler is told in also Matthew and Mark. In Mark's gospel, this is the wording that's used. Jesus, looking at him, at the rich ruler, loved him. He wasn't just slamming the guy and putting him in his place. Oh, you think you're so good. How about this? He looks at him with deep love. And out of that deep love and concern for this man, out of that deep love and concern, like his love as deep as you can have, he is able to say, you lack one thing. Go and sell all and give it to the poor and come follow me. It's because Jesus loves him so much that he's willing to challenge him. The same is true with us. God cares about your heart, which means God cares about you. And because he cares about you, he cares about your attitude towards your money and possessions and wealth. In the Gospel of Luke earlier in chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Randy Alcorn commenting on this said, Jesus is saying, show me your checkbook, your credit card statement, and receipts for cash expenditures, and I'll show you where your heart is. What we do with our money is a clear statement to God of what we truly value. Two things to close. If you're not sure what you believe about God, about Jesus, if you're just mildly religious, don't just sit here feeling guilty. And please don't be angry at the preacher for talking about money. He doesn't normally do this. God doesn't actually want your money. He wants you. If you're not ready to give yourself fully, totally and completely to Jesus, do not stress the money part. If, on the other hand, you're a Christian who believes the gospel of grace, that Jesus died for you a sinner and you did not earn it, maybe it's worth considering your relationship to your income and your investments and your money and your stuff. It might be that God wants you to take a radical leap. Could I give away more and still be okay with it? And don't feel like, because I'm saying this, you have to give to CCV. Give somewhere else. Release the hold it has on you. What do you want? 
if you want Jesus, if that's what you want most, if you want his kingdom, give him yours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your brutal honesty with the rich ruler is a challenge to all of us. But you speak this way to him and to us because you love us. Give us the grace to see that you are offering us a way to true life. You gave yourself for us. Help us to give ourselves to you. Amen.